title of this message this morning is Hold Fast to Christ. Hold Fast to Christ. The story is told about a father of a vacationing family who came across a large sign that read, Road Closed, Do Not Enter. The man proceeded around the sign because he was confident it would save them time. His wife was resistant to the adventure, but there was no turning back for this persistent road warrior. After a few miles of successful navigation, he began to boast about his gift of discernment. His proud smile was quickly replaced, however, with humble sweat when the road led to a washed-out bridge. He turned the car around and retraced his tracks to the main road. And when they arrived at the original warning sign, he was greeted by large letters on the back of the sign saying, Welcome back, dummy. (laughs) And as you can see, Many people ignored the warning sign, which led to a dead end. And although they didn't end up in a deadly or dangerous situation, what Paul will present to us this morning will lead you to deadly danger. For the Christian, holding fast to the life giver, Jesus Christ, will keep you on the right path and will lead you to life. On the other hand, not holding fast to Christ will open you up to all kinds of error and deception and will not lead you to life. And Paul, if you've been joining in with us, he's, he's in the middle of putting Christ forth as the antidote to the, to the false teaching that was infiltrating the churches in and around Colossae. And in our passage, we're going to see two specific dangers, legalism and mysticism. Both detract and distance you from Christ. Both drag you away from the freedom you already have and enjoy in Jesus Christ. And we need to pay very close attention to the dangers that Paul is going to present to us. And remember this, Christ plus anything equals nothing. And Christ plus nothing equals everything. If you've received Christ, you've received everything. No need for additions, no need for subtractions, and no need for substitutes. Why? Because you can't improve on Christ. Because you can't improve on the gospel. What Christ did, he did once for all. The work is finished. There's nothing more Christ could have done than he has done for us. Brothers and sisters, you've received Christ. Remain in him. He's your hope in life and death. He's your confidence and comfort. He's your rock and your redeemer. And you're complete and free in Christ. And this morning, we're going to see how how these false teachers try to add to the work of Christ. They try to add to what Christ has already accomplished for us. And we're going to see what believers must do in order to remain faithful. The main point this morning is guard your freedom in Christ by holding fast to Christ. Guard your freedom in Christ by holding fast to Christ. You're taking notes, two things this morning. Number one, hold fast to the substance verses 16 and 17, and number two, hold fast to the source, verses 18 and 19. So first, hold fast to the substance. Last week, we learned how complete or how full we are in Christ. We're fully saved, fully forgiven, and fully victorious. This is every believer's boast and every believer's reality. And now in verses 16 and 17, Paul's not leaving that teaching behind. We see what he says at the beginning of verse 16. Look at it. Therefore, 
linking word. Because you're saved, forgiven, and victorious in Christ, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Paul commands the Colossians, let no one act as your judge. Let no one pass unfavorable judgment on you. It can even be translated condemn, criticize, or find fault with. The idea is don't allow others to intimidate you or question your spirituality with a set of standards that aren't biblical. He's talking about the false teachers who were judging spirituality on the basis of religious rules rather than on Christ. And they measured maturity by religious actions that weren't required for the Colossian believers. It was all external. It was all performance-based by what you do, by what you don't do. And if you don't do or do what they say, then you open yourself up to judgment and condemnation. So let's look, exactly, let's look at exactly what these false teachers were advocating and trying to get these believers in Colossae to submit to. We're told in questions of food and drink and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And we know that this doctrine that false teachers were teaching was a mix. It was a blend of Greek philosophy, Jewish legalism, pagan superstitions, Eastern mysticism, and other strange trends. And what we have in our verse this morning would fall under Jewish legalism. They were teaching that certain days were holy and certain foods were sinful. And they were condemning or even excluding Christians who weren't adding these extra rules to their lives. Simply, it's Christ plus this. It's not enough to have Christ. You also need to keep the Jewish ceremonial law. Colossian believers, do you really want to grow and be spiritual? Then observe this diet and observe these days. And to put it another way, here are your food and drink restrictions, and here are your calendar regulations that you must follow. And if you're truly spiritual, then you must maintain this diet and properly observe all the right holy days. And in the Old Testament, if you're familiar, in, in Leviticus, you'll find God's law for Israel concerning dietary laws and concerning the sacred calendar. And these were mandatory for Jews. The Jews were obligated to keep to these laws concerning the diet and days. And we need to also keep in mind the, the purpose of these laws. It was given by the perfect lawgiver, God himself. And it was given to mark Israel as God's distinct people. It was to set them apart from the surrounding nations and to point people to God. So how does this relate to or affect the Colossian believers? It doesn't. Because believers in Colossae and believers today are under the new covenant. The ceremonial law, the dietary laws, and the religious days have been set aside by Jesus Christ. And Jesus made that clear in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus teaches on what defiles a person. He says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Romans chapter 14 and 17, Paul told the Romans, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, Paul also said this, food 
will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Jesus and Paul both taught this. And we also see it illustrated in the life of Peter in his, in his vision in Acts chapter 10. Peter was traveling and became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while he was waiting for the food, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in the sheet were all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice saying to Peter, Rise, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came a second time and said, What God has made clean, do not call common. So what Paul wanted these believers to do was to guard their freedom in Christ. Don't let anyone judge you, he says. Remember, Christ came to redeem you from the curse of the law, meaning that the law can't judge what Christ has already fulfilled. The law can't judge what Christ has already fulfilled. So what else were these false teachers advocating? Observance to festivals, new moon, and Sabbath. I'm not going to say too much here, but because Paul's focus isn't on these specific days, but rather he's working towards what he's going to say next in verse 17. So very briefly on, on these days, festivals were held annually. New moon was monthly, and Sabbath were, was held weekly. And for these false teachers, you weren't faithful if you didn't honor and observe these traditions. And Paul outright condemns those who use eating and drinking and observance of feast days to pass judgment on others. So he says, let no one pass judgment on you. Don't sacrifice your freedom in Christ for a set of man-made rules that don't make you more spiritual as the false teachers claimed it would. Don't let anyone judge you concerning dietary customs and religious practices because you're full and complete in Christ. And Paul, he doesn't end there. He's working towards verse 17, like I said. So let's look at verse 17. What, he, what does Paul say next? These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul begins by saying these, or these things. He's referring back to the things he just mentioned. Food and drink, festival, new moon, and Sabbath. Paul is saying those things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Those things are merely pointers to Christ. They're shadows of the things to come. Now, I remember about a year into my marriage, coming home one day from work, and Kat leading me into our bedroom, and she took out a pregnancy test that she had already taken, but she was too scared to look at the result. So she waited until I got home from work, and then she had me look at the result. And it was a positive. We were going to have our first child, and I had no words. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to, re to react or respond. It was a great moment in our lives. But there was an even greater moment about three months later when Kat and I went to her ultrasound. We got to hear London's heartbeat for the very first time. We got to see... Uh, an outline of her body, which just looked like the, a little blob on, on the screen. And, and we also got to take some pictures home from that appointment. And Kat 
more than me looked at those photos religiously. Now, how silly would it be if I kept that photo in my wallet and looked at it every day, even after London was already born? How foolish would it be if I admired a photo of London and ignored her physical presence? How insane would it be if London wanted to play with me, but I told her, don't bother me right now. I'm busy looking at your ultrasound picture. Why would I do something like that? The ultrasound pictures were only important for a time. For a time, we would be constantly looking at the picture because of what it represented, because of what it pointed to. So now I don't cling to pictures, ultrasound pictures anymore because I can clearly look at London and cling on to her. Those images only prepared and pointed to the reality of what was to come. A commentator says, some, describes it like this, as trying to hug a shadow when the reality is at hand. The false teachers wanted the Colossians to focus on the shadows. Paul says, don't focus on the shadows. Don't fixate on diets and days. Look past the shadow to the reality, Jesus Christ. In other words, a shadow has no reality. It's, it's the reality that makes the shadow. On top of this, the word substance, it literally means body. That tells us that Jesus Christ is the body that casts the shadow. Jesus Christ is the reality to which the shadows pointed. And when he appeared, you can let the shadow go. You don't follow diets. Christ is the bread that came down from heaven, John 6, 41. You don't observe Passover or any feast. Christ is our Passover lamb and has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. You don't observe Sabbath. Hebrews 4 says Christ is our eternal rest. There's no need for Christians to observe the ceremonial laws. And the point to be made here is don't substitute the temporary for the substance. Don't substitute the temporary for the substance. If you have the substance, don't be fixated on the shadows. Why go back to pre-Christ shadows when the reality they pointed to has already come? And I want to explore this word shadow a little bit more. It's used seven times in the New Testament. Three times it has theological significance. One is from our verse this morning. The other two is found in the book of Hebrews. And to see how Jesus Christ is the greater reality to the temporary shadows and what that means for every believer living in the new covenant, I want us to look at one of those verses in Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, where the writer writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You see what the author is saying there. It's talking about the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is said to be a shadow of coming good things. In the Old Testament, the high priest would have to offer sin offerings for his own sins and for the sins of the people once a year by entering the Holy of Holies. And upon exiting the Holy of Holies, the people knew that the sacrifices on their behalf had been accepted by God. However, those annual sacrifices were only a, rem a reminder to the people that their sins weren't removed because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, Hebrews 10.4. There was a deficiency in the system. The law wasn't enough. The Bible throughout the Old Testament teaches us this. The law wasn't enough. 
Adam wasn't enough. Moses wasn't enough. All the kings weren't enough. Nor the judges, nor the prophets, nor the priests. And this led to the people longing for a Messiah. This made the people desire and anticipate a coming king who could forgive sin and free them from its condemnation. So we see the Levitical sacrificial system was a shadow of the greater reality, Jesus Christ. And Christ has come. And we have Christ. We don't need the shadows because we have the reality. We have the real thing. Christ fulfilled the law. And Christ offered the sacrifice and was the sacrifice for us. And his blood takes away sin forever. So brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He's our once for all perfect sacrifice. And there's no deficiency in him. He's our perfect sufficiency. And there's no longer a need for a sacrificial system that would only cover sin and not remove it. Christ is the reality. And he has come, and now our sins are completely forgiven and completely removed. And on top of that, he intercedes for us. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7.25. Romans 8.34 tells us, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. As, this, as the song we sang, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So food and drink restrictions, just a shadow. Festival, new moon, Sabbath, just a pointer to the reality. They all anticipate a perfect king who was coming and who has come. We have Christ. We have the substance. Why play around in the shadows? And what a striking blow to the false teachers. Because Paul, in a sense, is saying to them, if you're trying to reach some fuller level of spirituality by keeping rules, then you're living as though Christ hasn't yet come. You're the ones who are still living in the shadows. Don't substitute the temporary for the substance. True spirituality is holding fast to the substance, Jesus Christ, not the shadows. And any method, any program of spiritual development that doesn't have Christ at its heart pay no attention to because keeping external rules without having a relationship with Jesus Christ is pointless. Like we learned last week, God is not concerned with the externals. He's only concerned about our hearts. And keeping rules as a gauge on spirituality is all outward. We understand this, right? Even unbelievers can keep a list of do's and don'ts. We have fullness and freedom in Christ don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone enslave you by legalistic living. And what do I mean by legalistic living? Legalism is all about human achievement. It argues that spirituality is based on human works and it makes conformity to man-made rules the measure of spirituality. In other words, you measure your own or someone else's spirituality by their ability to keep your rules, not rules found in scripture. Robert Horn says legalism is man's misuse of God's law. And it's enticing. This is why it's dangerous. Legalism is enticing because we like the idea of measuring up. 
We like to have a list of do's and don'ts that tell us if we're meeting expectations or not. We like having rules so we can gauge where we stand with God, whether we're accepted by him or not. And that's where the danger is. It gives off the appearance of righteousness, but it's really no righteousness at all. It's a zeal not according to knowledge. And it's tempting to build our life around a set of rules. But as we'll see, it's a poor, it's a poor substitute for Christ. Because the more boxes you can check off, the more temptation there is to foster pride in your heart. And this is unwarranted because it's not even obedience to Scripture. It's just obedience to your own preferences. Very simply, it's self-righteousness and of no spiritual value. So, so when you focus more on rule-keeping, you're focusing less on Christ. And although we don't face these same dangers of food and drink and festivals, that doesn't mean that we don't face real dangers today with legalism. It's easy to reduce the gospel to a list of do's and don'ts and then to judge others based on their performance of your standard. The the self-righteous Pharisees are a good example of this. They were all about appearance. They were all about externals, all show and no go. They were so busy keeping up to their own rules and so busy keeping others to their own rules that when the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, was right in their midst, the one that everything they did pointed to, they didn't even notice him. In fact, they rejected him and held to their own man-made religion and had him crucified. The Pharisees held others to their own preferences as a measure of acceptance with God. Now, can you see yourself doing that too? Do you ever find yourself judging other Christians or questioning others' spirituality? Have you ever been critical of someone's maturity based on what they do? I can't believe that that family watched that movie. can't believe they listened to that kind of music. That family homeschools their kids. That family sends their kids to public school. That person drinks alcohol. That person has a number of tattoos. That person's not wearing a mask. That person's not even willing to wear a mask. We begin to think these things to ourselves. Are they even fit for fellowship? Brothers and sisters, sometimes we have our own set of standards and hold people to them. And we end up judging everyone by those standards, even when those standards aren't based on Scripture. And this is what makes legalism so ugly. It takes specific requirements of conduct that aren't explicitly, explicitly commanded and imposes it on others. And how easily we can make a number of rules on how we perceive Christians ought to look like externally. And don't get me wrong, there may be some good things, and there may be some great things, but non-scriptural expectations can take on a life of their own. Non-scriptural expectations can take on a life of their own. I think we understand that. Don't judge others or allow others to judge you on the pointers. We don't live on the pointers. We live in the shadows. We don't live in the shadows. So we let the shadows lead you to the one casting the shadow, Jesus Christ. Hold fast to the substance. 
Legalism is dangerous and it detracts you from Christ. Put your confidence in the person of Christ, not in practices. And don't substitute your freedom for a shadow. That's the first thing. Secondly, hold fast to the source. Verses 18 and 19. There was other dangers that these Colossian believers were, were facing. Not only legalism, but also mysticism. Paul shifts from talking about rules to talking about spiritual experiences. And that's what mysticism is. It's a pursuit of a deeper religious experience. It's all driven by experience, not driven by the truth. And that's one of the errors of it. The false teachers were using experiences as a way to view status, as a way to rank believers. You know, do you worship angels? Do you have visions? Can you speak in, in, in tongues? If you can't, then, you know, something's wrong with you. You're inferior. You're missing out on true spirituality. Paul, Paul's command is clear. Let no one disqualify you. Let no one declare you unfit. The NASB says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. The idea is that these self-appointed judges or referees ruled against believers and robbed them of their deserved prize. Colossians 1.12 if you want to look at it, it says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We've been qualified by God to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. These false teachers were seeking to disqualify believers, and so Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you. We're going to see what was involved in this mysticism, four things. And remember, mysticism is all about spiritual experiences. The first thing we see is that they insist on asceticism. We won't go into detail what asceticism is, but we're gonna, we'll look at that next time. The important thing to note about this word is that it means humility. In this case, it's a, it's a false humility. It's pride in disguise. And the idea is self-abasement, holding to strict, rigorous denial or living an exceptionally pious lifestyle, being disciplined to the T, so if you humble yourself in this way, they taught, if you restrict yourself in this way and treat your body like this, then you can open yourself up to spiritual experiences where you can get closer to the Lord. You, you open up channels where you can get more of the Lord. The, the false teachers were promoting these ascetic practices that supposedly were meant to induce or trigger visions and give you experiences with angelic beings. That's the second thing we see, the worship of angels. This was a preoccupation with angels to such an extent that it led to worshiping them. They taught, you can't go to God directly. You have to go through angels. God is too holy and too unapproachable that you can't bother him. However, you have these angels. They can mediate for you. They're constantly and consistently available for you. They'll provide you protection. They'll help you approach God. You just have to abase yourself more. And we take a step back and look at Scripture. Scripture is clear that there are angels, but we're not to worship angels, whether, we're, whether they're good or fallen. We're not to worship creatures, but rather worship the Creator. Jesus quoted to Satan in the wilderness, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. We're, on, we're not to serve or worship evil angels. This, 
the same is true for good angels. The Apostle John in Revelation 22, he fell down to worship an angel, but was told to worship God. Where it says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Then he says this, worship God. So we're not to worship angels, we're to worship God. Also, angels don't mediate for us. The Bible is clear. There's only one mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 There's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The false teachers said you needed to have these experiences with angelic beings to have true fullness. The third thing we see is that they go on in detail about visions. They insist on asceticism that, induce, that induces visions which they recount in detail to glorify not God but themselves. They're obsessed with their private religious experiences and they serve only and these serve only to puff them up, to inflate their egos. The idea is that these teachers go on and on and on about visions, claiming more than what can be proved. They claim more than what can be proved, claiming a higher level of spirituality, claiming a higher level of spiritual sensitivity. And this gave them authority. This gave them a sense of authority which leads to the fourth thing, spiritual arrogance or pride. Paul says, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So as a result of their experiences, they get conceited, they get puffed up, they get arrogant, but we're told it's without reason. If you think about that, some people may be puffed up and they have a reason to be. Not saying that that's okay, but at least it makes sense. These false teachers are puffed up without reason. Other translations translate it puffed up with idle notions or puffed up for nothing, inflated without cause. You know, in 1 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, Paul, he warns against false teachers, saying, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You see that that, that speaks into what Paul says next. Their, their reasoning comes from a sensuous mind. It refers to an unspiritual, fleshly, sinful mind. The mind that Paul talks about in Romans 8, 7, where it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it, it cannot. Or the futile mind in Ephesians four seventeen. And this shouldn't surprise any of us. This shouldn't surprise us. The picture is of someone who loves to talk about their spiritual experiences, the feelings they felt, the things they've seen, the things they've heard, but really, this kind of boasting comes from their own sinful flesh. It's self-exalting, and that's the key, to, to, that's the key thing to know. False teaching, specifically mysticism in our context, doesn't exalt Christ. It exalts self. So the one key question you always have to ask when you hear teaching is, does it exalt Christ? Who is being exalted? The teacher or Christ? There's a saying, he who sings his own praise is usually off-key. And that's true of false teachers. The teaching was that if you weren't experiencing these supernatural visions, you were missing out. But the irony is that the false teachers 
claimed and considered themselves to be super spiritual when in fact they were actually unspiritual. And they claimed to be humble, but they were actually the most prideful ones of all. Brothers and sisters, mysticism isn't biblical. God's word is authoritative, not visions and not experiences. Hebrews 1 and 1 and 2, it talks about Jesus Christ is God's final and complete revelation to man. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God's word is a more sure guide than experience. And whenever religion is more about man than about God, run quickly and run as far as you can get. And whether it's legalism or mystical experiences or something else, at their core, it's self-righteous religion not founded on Christ and not founded in Scripture. And it's a prison, it's a trap, because if you're pious, you'll become prideful. And if you get overwhelmed by all the rules and experiences that you're supposed to have, you'll be miserable. And either way, it leads to nowhere. So don't let anyone disqualify you. Remember what, what I said earlier, you can't improve on Christ and you can't add to Christ. What makes you a true Christian isn't merely following rules. It's not performance. It's not on how good you are. We know none of us are good enough to meet God's standard, let alone stand before him on the basis of our works. What makes you a Christian is a person, Jesus Christ. It's Christ. That's what Paul has been hammering to us this whole time. It's the same nail he keeps hitting. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. He has no substitutes. So when tempted to think there's something more, or when you're tempted to look to someone or something else, Christ is enough. We need to speak truth to our emotions. We need to bring the truth of, gospel, of the gospel to bear upon our thinking. And mysticism is a broad topic that can cover many different things, like the charismatic movement and Pentecostalism can all fall under it. It's all false. It's all false supernaturalism. And we don't have time to unpack all of that, but just know that you may know some people involved in it. You may know people trapped in it, and they need your prayers. Many are being deceived out of their freedom in Christ. Many are trapped and don't even know it. And many are following heresy in the name of Jesus Christ. Many are trusting experiences and not trusting in Christ alone. What they need and what we all need is to look to Christ, our source of truth and life. Look at verse 19. Jesus Christ is the source. He's the head that we need to hold fast to. So how does a believer spiritually grow? Not by legalism, not by mysticism, but by holding fast to the head, Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Do you see what Paul's saying there? He's saying real growth comes from God through our union with Christ. Real growth comes from God through our union with Christ. That was the issue with these false teachers. They weren't holding fast to Christ. The NIV puts it this way. They have lost connection with the head. They've lost connection with the head. They're disconnected, which means, which this ultimately leads to spiritual 
starvation. They're holding on to something other than Christ, and that's the root of their error. And if you're here or listening on the live stream and don't know Jesus Christ, I want to hold out to you some good news. Christianity is not merely about rule-keeping. It's not about experiences. It's not about being a nicer person. It's not about being a better person. Christianity is about being a new person through the person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone can make you a new person. And until you are made new, your soul will be restless. As Augustine famously said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Your sin demands a penalty, and your attempts, your futile attempts to free yourself of of the guilt and shame are hopeless because you're a slave to sin. And the more you labor and strive, the more weary you will get. The Bible teaches that you can't free yourself from the burden. Only Christ can do that, and he has accomplished salvation for all who would repent and believe in him. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Jesus will give you true life and Jesus will give you true rest. Will you come to Christ this morning? Let's continue. Jesus Christ is our source of life. He's our nourishment and, our, and, and growth. That means that our connection to the head is vital. Our connection to the head is vital. John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The word abide, it means to remain. Easy application for us. What does this mean for us? Remain. Just stay there. Don't leave Christ. Don't waver. Stay true. Keep holding fast to Christ. Stay devoted. Depend on him. In 2 Kings 18, 5 and 6, this was said of King Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among all those who were before him. And here's the thing I want you to hear. For he held fast to the Lord. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Hold fast to Christ alone, because that's how you grow as a believer. Christ is the living head of the church. He's the one that gives nourishment and growth to the body. And just like a physical body will die without its head, we die spiritually unless we're vitally connected to our Lord and Savior. Notice not only the individual aspect of holding fast, but also the corporate aspect. He's the one from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together. That's significant, because how big is the church, if you know church history? How long has the church been around? At least 2,000 years or so. The whole church 
has been and is now nourished by this one Christ. That ought to amaze you. The growth that Paul pictures here for us is tied to being a community of God's people. In other words, holding fast to Christ takes place not only individually, but it also takes place in the context of a church. We're nourished and knit together through joints and ligaments. This is the language of parts of a body that make up the whole. And every part, every member is important to the health and growth of the body. And that tells us that our holding fast to Christ grows not only us spiritually, but it grows us as a church in unity with one another. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Whatever growth our church will do, it will only do because of our connection to Christ. Growth comes from the head. Anything else is misguided and misdirected. Someone said, it's, it's no shame when a Christian finds that he or she can't grow spiritually without support and help from fellow believers. It is rather a surprise that anyone should have thought such a thing possible, let alone desirable. May God use that to convict anyone who thinks they can do it on their own. Not only is God with you, but you have fellow believers to help you grow spiritually. This is why church is so essential. We don't just come to church, we are the church. And being away from Sunday worship, you lose connection, you lose vitality, you lose nourishment, and you take yourself away from growing. Brothers and sisters, prioritize gathering with one another every Lord's day. And hasn't COVID taught us that human-to-human interaction is what we need? Technology may allow certain things and even strengthen relationships, but it can't replace them. We need to have the mindset of the Apostle John, who in 2 John 12 said, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that your joy, so that our joy may be complete. Christ loves the church. The church is important to Christ. He gave himself up and died for his bride, the church. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members. We are members of his body. Ephesians 5, 29 and 30. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because we're his. We're, his, we're members of his body. There's a vital connection between Christ and the church. And if you love Christ, then you ought to love the church because you can't separate the two. Augustine, again, to quote him, you can't have God for your father if you refuse to have the church for your mother. So may you know that church isn't just a place we meet. It's a place where members grow together with the growth that's from God. May you understand God's role for the church in redemptive history and also understand your role in the church. It's not what you get out of church, it's what you give to the church in service. In other words, be a contributor and not a consumer, and be a servant, not a spectator, and taking Christ as our example 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The lesson in the second point is don't substitute the speculative for the source. In other words, don't substitute experiences for what's vital. Hold fast to the source, Jesus Christ. He's the head we're to remain firmly committed to. And know this, experiences don't equal spiritual maturity. Experiences don't equal spiritual maturity. You're qualified in Christ. Don't let anyone seek to disqualify you. And be reminded of this truth, that you can only hold fast to Christ because he first has taken hold of you and made you his very own. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight, Christ will hold me fast. Christ promises that he will lose none. He will lose none of all those that the Father has given to him. We learn in John 10 that no one can snatch you out of Christ's hand, and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. So whatever situation you're in, whatever life in a fallen world throws your way, you can be assured that Christ will hold you fast. I love this quote by Thomas Brooks. Assurance makes heavy afflictions light, long afflictions short, and bitter afflictions sweet. However, we can't just rest on that glorious truth that Christ will hold us fast. We must also hold fast to Christ. He has set us free And it's by holding fast to him that we grow to be more like him. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to his word. Hold fast to his promises. Hold fast to the anchor of your souls. Colossians 1.23 says, Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. We need to know that real spiritual growth comes from holding fast to the source. And we've seen that both the substance and the source our Jesus Christ. We learn that we guard our freedom in Christ by holding fast to Christ. And look at Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. You're taking notes, write these two things down. First, Jesus is fully God. Nothing needs to be added to Christ. Jesus is fully God. Nothing needs to be added to Christ. Second, I am complete in Christ. Nothing needs to be added to me. You have everything you need. 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You can't improve on Christ, and you can't improve on the gospel. It's Jesus Christ alone, not Jesus Christ plus anything else. You can't add anything to what Christ has already done for you. Think of a glass of water filled to the brim. Can you add anything to it without spilling what's already inside? In the same way, you've received fullness in Christ, and you can't add anything else without taking away from what Christ has already done for you. And the more you see yourself in light of Christ, the more you'll see that when you have Christ, you truly have everything you need. You're complete in him. So don't let anyone attack your freedom in Christ. 
It's a story of a little boy and his father visiting a country store. Upon leaving the store, the owner of the, the, owner of the store offered the little boy some free candy. Get a handful of candy, the merchant said to the boy. The boy just stood there looking up at his father. The owner repeated himself, son, get a handful of candy. It's free. Again, the boy did not move, continuing to look up in the face of his father. Finally, the father reached into the candy jar and got a handful of candy and gave it to his son. And as they were walking back home, the father stopped and asked his son why he didn't grab a handful of the free candy. The boy, with a big smile on his face, looked into the face of his father and said, because I know that your hand is bigger than mine. Brothers and sisters, you're free. Reach for the candy. Christ has rescued you and set you free. You're free from the power and penalty of sin. You're no longer a slave to sin doing whatever you please. You're now a blood-bought son and daughter of the king, free to obey and please God by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. You're free from the guilt and shame. Jesus has forgiven you completely and fully. You're free to serve Christ, not to win approval, not to gain favor, but because you love, you have a great love for the one who accomplished it all for you. You're free. Let no one, Paul says, judge you or disqualify you. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. These things, these false teachers, it's a yoke of slavery. True spirituality and true spiritual growth isn't a matter of religious rules or experiences, but rather a relationship with Jesus Christ, being one with him. And the way to stay clear of the deadly and dangerous warning signs is to stay devoted and dedicated to Christ. Guard your freedom in Christ by holding fast to Christ and give yourself freely to the Lord like he's freely given himself to you. Live the life of Christ. Live the life Christ has freed you to live. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we need you, O Lord. We need you every hour. We need you. We confess that we don't always hold fast to, you, to Christ. And we ask for your help to pry open our hands of the things we're holding on to that take us away from Christ. We thank you for freedom in Christ that's brought about by our union with Christ. It's through connection to him that we're nourished and knit together. Help us not to only hear your word, but to be a doer of your word. Help us not to only to receive your word, but to treasure your word, to know what's infinite value. We ask that you make Christ our greatest satisfaction. Press upon our minds and hearts his infinite worth, his perfect love, his constant care, and help us to walk by faith, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face, and all the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, we ask that you would keep our church far, far away from the deception and snares of legalism and mysticism and all false teaching. Help us to hold fast to our life giver and head, Jesus Christ. May we not play in the shadows because the reality has come. May our only hope and our only confidence be in Jesus Christ. Amen.